This morning we have two passages from Luke chapter 6. So I'm going to be reading from verses 27 through to 36, and then uh, just a little bit further down, verses 43 through to 45. Okay, starting at verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And then moving down to verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognised by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks from the, sorry, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. While we start in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that this morning you would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would give us attentive hearts and minds, that uh, he would be challenging uh, where we need challenge and comforting where we need comfort. Father, that he would be bringing us uh, your truth and changing our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, helpful as always, if you can have open your Bible. It uh, keeps me honest. It also means you can follow along and see where I'm, that I'm not just making this up. I'm actually uh, getting it out of God's word. Uh, and it's particularly important with this series. We're doing a series we've entitled Hard Words. We're looking at some of the things that Jesus said that maybe we might find a little bit difficult. In the community, broadly, Jesus is held up as a good teacher. But I think that when you get under the surface, that what you are often dealing with is a censored Jesus, a Jesus where they like certain bits but not other bits. But of course, we maybe uh, who have been Christians for a long time We would never do that, would we? We would never pick and choose the bits of Jesus that we like, the teachings that suit us and ignore or explain away. Would we we do that? I think sometimes that uh, for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, we put Jesus in a slow cooker. And even the tough bits come out a bit mushy. Yes? And so I would like to encourage you in this series and in this sermon to recognise that Jesus really does mean it and that his words 
cut across many of the core values of our culture and they should make us notice. They should make us sit up. They should make us go, what on earth are you talking about? We shouldn't just read them comfortably. This morning, uh, Stephen read for us a passage that for many of us might be familiar and it contains one verse, verse 31, that is probably one of the most famous things that Jesus ever said. Uh, If you grew up in a family like mine, my mother used to quote this at me and my brother often uh, when we were obviously making each other's life hard. You know, do unto others as you would have them. Did your mother or father ever say that to you? Yeah, a few nods out there. But it's interesting. Our society loves that idea but finds it very difficult to live that way. Because we live in a society that works on contracts. We live in a society where every sort of relationship has a little bit of, as long as my needs are being met, I'll meet your needs. If you meet your obligations, I'll meet mine. It's a law of reciprocity. In the the musical Chicago, uh, there was a character who's the, the matron of the women's prison, and she sings a song. Uh, and uh, she expresses it brilliantly. I love them all, and all of them love me, because the system works, the system called reciprocity. When you're good to mama, mama's good to you. That's what our society works on. But this is nothing new. This is not just a recent phenomenon. Let's go back Two and a half thousand years to, I'm sure you're familiar with the works of Lysias of Athens, yes? This guy turned around and said, I considered established that one should do harm to one's enemies and be of service to one's friends. What he's saying is, if you're good to mama, mama's good to you. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. This is nothing new. Our world has worked this way for a very long time. And Jesus knew it. If you look at verse 32 there, he talks about those who love those who love them. Verse 33, those who do good to those who do good to them. Those who, in verse 34, those who uh, lend to those from whom they hope to receive. Jesus was aware of this law of reciprocity, this you scratch your back, my back, I'll scratch yours, that if you're good to mama, mama's good to you. And there's a certain amount of it that as you think about it, it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense because if I don't look after me, who's going to look after me? And on the darker side, if I don't make sure they get what they deserve, maybe they'll get off scot-free. And so we find ourselves in these contract relationships where we do good in return for good, where we do evil, when we inflict harm in return for harm. But in that, Jesus calls us to love our enemies, to answer a curse with a blessing, to pray for those who persecute us. How are you thinking about that? Do you find that comfortable? Do you kind of think, 
That sounds nice, but you know, the world, Cameron, just could never work like that. And a guy by the name of Alfred Plummer, writing on the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew recounts the same teaching, he says this, he says, To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. I think Plummer recognises that the golden rule is actually beyond the reach of mere mortals. It's not a natural thing for us to love our enemies, for us to do what we would want done to ourselves, to others. It's beyond us. But Jesus expects us to do it. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. That's what we're going to unpack. Can I just say... A quick aside, uh, as we're talking about this, I'm aware that for many of us, perhaps all of us, we have areas, we have people in our lives that have caused us significant suffering, significant pain. For some of us, that is happening now. And so when I speak of Jesus' words, love your enemy, you've got someone very particular in mind. And maybe you're starting to feel a little bit anxious Can I say, I'm aware that this is an easy sermon to preach, but it's a hard thing to live. Can I encourage you to hang in there? Can I encourage you to sit with Jesus' words? And if there are issues that you would like to talk about afterwards, I'd love to talk about them with you. And there'd be others here as well. And afterwards as well, there's going to be a prayer group in here if there's things that you would like to particular prayer for. I know Ryan and others who are in there would love to pray with you about some of those things. Can I also, as we start, clarify a few things? One is the word love. Now, I I did some research and and the jury's out on this. You know there's a a legend about how many different words Eskimos have for snow? Uh, Some people say that's rubbish, but some people say it's actually true, that they have lots and lots of different words for snow. Um, We have one word, love. That word covers a whole range of different meanings. Everything from uh, I love carrots to I love my wife, uh, to all sorts of things. I'm not going to go too much further because there's children there, but you get the idea. And as we think about love, love in our mindset is something that is predominantly a matter of the heart. Think about how the media, how our music, how our movies portray love. We are almost victims of love, yes? Love is inflicted upon us. It almost happens in spite of ourselves. It is an emotional thing. How many movies, you know, do you remember, um, what was it? Is it Sleepless in Seattle? Has anyone seen that? Just that marvellous movie. These two people hate each other's guts, but they fall in love. You know, all those stories again, and it happens in spite of ourselves. Now, the Greeks were a little bit more nuanced, and the New Testament being written in Greek, uh, they have four words for love. And Leon Morris, in his commentary, gives us a little bit of... Uh, unpacking of these words. There are several words in love uh, for love in Greek. Jesus was not asking for storge, natural affection. That's one word. Nor eros, romantic love, nor for philia, the love of friendship. He was speaking of agape, 
which means love even of the unworthy, love which is not drawn out by the merit of the beloved, but which proceeds from the fact that the lover choose to be a loving person. Can you see how that idea that Morris gives us there, it is different to how our culture understands love. And when Jesus is calling us to love our enemies, he's calling us to that agape love, not to focus on the merit or the lovability of the, the object, but also but to, but to focus on the decision. So there is a choice that is made. It doesn't mean that it's not an emotion, but it means that it is not dictated by emotion. That's the first little clarification. The second thing I just wanted to say is you might be thinking, okay, it's all well and good, Cameron, for Jesus to say, love your enemies, but what about the Old Testament? Okay, if you've read the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, you come across Psalms like Psalm 69. I call them the nasty Psalms. If you want to be technically, they're called the imprecatory Psalms. And here David, I think it is, says, May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot be seen and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath upon them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. And if you read the psalm, it keeps going. So how do we recognise that Jesus and Psalm 69 are actually in the same Bible? How do we deal with this? And the one thing I'd like to say is Jesus was completely aware of these psalms and on occasions quoted them in reference to himself. I actually think he picks up Psalm 69, different verses, to speak of himself. Jesus was aware of them and felt obviously no contradiction. Because what happens in the Psalms is human experience is processed before God. And so what David is not saying is, I'm going to go and get them. What he is saying is, is, Lord, this is what I want. I want judgment. I want justice for this. But you notice that he leaves it with God. Pour out your wrath on them. It's important that we actually see that the Old Testament gives us a way of actually processing our pain and I think complements what we see in Jesus' teaching on loving your enemies. We've got to remember that the Psalms were the corporate songbook for Israel. Those 150 Psalms, they were part of the public worship. So imagine you came along and the band led us to sing that. Well, there is a point where that would actually teach us how to deal with, before God, the very real human response to people making our life very difficult. The other part of the Old Testament you might be familiar with is the old eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. How many Westerns has that been quoted in? We just need to say just really quickly in passing. It's in Leviticus 24 and it's civil law. And it is something to limit damage rather than to justify it. So it means that if I cause you damage, the most that can be expected of me is the damage that was done to you. So if I knock out your eye, the most that can be expected of me is my eye is knocked out. If I kill you, 
The most that can be taken from me is my life. So in Israel, this law actually gave a limit. So you didn't get a situation where I kill you and your relatives come back and wipe out my entire family. That kind of thing is ruled inadmissible. So this is actually a limitation on vengeance and it is a civil law, not a personal command. Anyway, let's get back to Jesus and the good, the golden rule. Do to others, Jesus tells us, as you would have them do to you. Now, I need to acknowledge that Jesus was not the only one who said something like this. If you go across lots of different cultures, lots of different teachers, and people before Jesus said this, but they normally say it in the negative. So, for example, a hundred years or so before Jesus, the rabbi Hillel said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbour. Do you see the difference? Don't do the bad stuff that you don't want done to you, to them. That's what my mother meant when she quoted to me, do unto others. But that is a negative formulation. Jesus gives it to us in the positive. The negative actually makes it easier because I can go about my business and there's no necessity of interacting with you at all. But Jesus does not leave us there. He says, what you want people to do to you, you do to others. It is a love on the front foot. It's proactive. It seeks opportunity to express itself rather than just sitting back and waiting that it might happen in reaction to something. It's a love that seeks to do the good. So when we're told to love enemies... What we do is we, in response to their hatred, seek their good. Love is seeking good without reference to the cost. It's remaining in relationship, Jesus said. It's not that polite withdrawal where we just don't really have much to do with them anymore. I've moved on. That's not what Jesus calls us to. He doesn't call us to quarantine those people to walk away from those people. He calls us to remain engaged, to remain vulnerable, perhaps, to suffering more. Because the motivation, the motivation Jesus tells us for doing to others what you would have them do to you is love, is seeking their good. And how can you seek their good if you have nothing to do with them in any Why? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a victim of significant evil himself, wrote this. He said, Christian love draws no distinction between one enemy and another, except the more bitter our enemy's hatred, the greater his need of love. The more they hate us, the more they need us to love them back. Be his enmity political or religious, he has nothing to expect from a follower of Jesus but unqualified love. It's stark, isn't it? Do you feel the force of what Bonhoeffer is saying? Bonhoeffer, who was hung 
in the Flossenberg concentration camp at the end of the war. He knew what it was to put this into practice. Jesus calls us to that unqualified love to seek the good, even of those who seek the worst of you. There's no room for revenge. There's no room for shutting down and walking away and I'm going to have nothing to do with you. Jesus calls us to that positive relationship of love. But you might be saying, actually, Cameron, it's not revenge anyway, it's justice. And I ask, really? I know that my attempts to bring justice are so often tinged with my self-righteous anger, my self-serving wrath. Paul tells us in Romans 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay. That's a promise, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Another Christian theologian, a guy called Miroslav Volf, grew up in Yugoslavia under communist occupation. This man, this Christian theologian, had married an American. So he was outcast on two levels. And as he was drafted, as all young men were, into the military the military took it upon themselves to make his life hell, to deconstruct him as a person through interrogation and torture. For merely being a Christian and having the temerity to marry an American. Wolf writes this, to triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetrated. The second victory, when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. Jesus is calling us as his followers to kill that second evil. As Paul says, to overcome evil with good, to meet hatred with love, to meet cursing with blessing, to be proactively seeking the good of all people, including those who would take you down. Jesus calls us never to seek revenge. Is that realistic? Is that realistic? Now, we have to recognise that Jesus, classic Jesus, using provocative language. Jesus is also speaking in a culture that did not have the justice system that we had. There may have been no escape for many who suffered. What Jesus is not calling us to do is to become a doormat. Jesus is calling us to always act out of love not out of vengeance. So as I think about how to respond to those who hurt me, 
to those who hurt the ones that I love. The motivation that Jesus calls us to have is love. What would be best for this person? And so that might mean that we are there to be hit again and again and again, to have the tunic, the cloak and everything else taken, if that is the response that would be most loving. But having said that, Jesus does not call us to stay in abusive relationships. Jesus does not call us to lie down in front of injustice and let it to roll over upon us. Jesus does not call us to step back and let the innocent suffer. But our actions are always to be motivated by love. There is a role for the law. There is a role for the government. It's there in Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to governing authorities. There is no authority except what God has established. God sets up governments. That's what Paul says. And in verse 4, they are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Brothers and sisters, to say turn the other cheek does not mean we cannot talk to the police. We cannot make a report to Families SA. We cannot tell our boss about the bullying that is happening in the workplace. It does not mean that we lie down in front of evil and just endure. But it means that whatever response we make is motivated by love and not vengeance. We don't go to the police to make them suffer. Have you seen those people interviewed after court cases and they're outraged that the penalty that was given was not enough? Why? Because they are looking for vengeance. They are looking for revenge. Brothers and sisters, Jesus does not call us to that. Now, as I've said, if you are in a situation where you are facing abuse, Jesus is not calling you in that situation to just meekly accept it. He is calling you to love the perpetrator. But can I say, he's not saying stay there. He's not saying just suck it up. People who use Jesus' words... Jesus who raged against the injustice and the evil of society. People who use his words to condone abuse, to permit abuse. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's horrid. But you cannot disconnect from that person and say, I've moved on. Maybe the most you can do in that context is pray. But brothers, sisters, seek their good in love. So how do you do it? It's a tough call, isn't it? How do we do this? And if you go into some of the literature that's out there, and there's lots of people writing about the golden rule, Hugh McKay, the Australian uh, social commentator, 
uh, has written about this. And you read his stuff and you get a couple of suggestions. Grit your teeth, put your head down and keep on going. Okay. Often you find there's an appeal to self-interest. You know, if you were able to forgive, you'd set yourself free. And so forgiveness becomes all about me and not the person that I'm seeking to forgive. Maybe the good of society. We want to live in a society where people forgive others. And so therefore you need to do this. But can I say those approaches work with little things. But one day there will be big things and you won't be able to just suck it up. You won't be able to say, hey, I can let this go and I can be free. There are some evils that are perpetrated against us, against you, that will stay with you. The scars will stay with you for the rest of your life. How can you say, for the good of the society, just let it go? Where is the power that lets us remain engaged at the best at that situation? You kind of grit your teeth, you put it behind you, you have nothing to do with that. You almost shut it off in your life. I won't go there and I've moved on. But that's not what Jesus calls us to. The worst case scenario is that we turn around and return evil for evil, perhaps with interest. So how do we do it? How does Jesus expect us to do this? Why would I say that the Christian's answer is better than any answer that Hugh McKay or anyone else could give? Why is Jesus' answer the best? Because for Jesus, he recognises that it is a matter of, of the heart. He says in verse 45, a good man brings up good things out of the good stored up in his heart. Literally, the good treasured in his heart. The good is an object. The good is something that is not there. It's like you've gone and you've got something of immense value and you've locked it away tight. And what Jesus is saying is that good treasure overflows to produce good in our lives. It transforms the heart. And that good is the gospel. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I want to unpack four things that the gospel gives us that we might love our enemies. The first thing is, is Jesus knows your pain. Jesus doesn't stand off and say, oh, look, whatever, just get over it. You go through the Gospels. You read the account of his life, how he was hated, cursed, betrayed, mistreated. He was subject to false testimony, physical abuse, stripped naked, beaten, humiliated, and then judicially murdered. Jesus knows your pain. He knows what it is to suffer at the hands of his enemies. Jesus gets it. So never think that God does not understand. But Christ on the cross prayed, Father, forgive them. 
the gospel also shows us that sin really, really matters to God. He's never going to say, I'll just get over it. Christ died that sin might be dealt with once for all. Christ died that sin might be judged in his body. Sin matters. The sin that has been committed against you matters to God. So much that Christ came to deal with it once for all. There will be judgment. Every secret will be disclosed. Every heart will be laid bare. There will be justice. Perfect justice as he alone is able to give. But not only that, the gospel shows us and calls us to be children of our heavenly father, to forgive as we ourselves have been forgiven. Do you remember Matthew 18? Jesus tells a parable, a little funny little story or tragic little story about a guy who owns like a squillion dollars to the king. Okay, he goes in and says, don't worry, king, I'll pay it back. As if. And the king says, don't worry about it. I forgive that debt. He goes out and he sees one of his mates who owes him a couple of hundred bucks. Maybe a little bit more than that. And he chokes this man. He throws him into prison until he might pay the debt. And then the fellow servants are a little bit aggrieved about this. And they go and they tell the king what's happened. And the king pulls the first servant back in and said, I've forgiven you a debt that you could never possibly pay. How could you do this? And he throws him into jail that he might pay off this squillion dollars. What I want to draw out is the gospel shows us that I have been forgiven, that you have been forgiven, that squillion dollar debt, that our offence against God has been washed clean in Christ. We owe the thousand talents or whatever Matthew 18 says, the money beyond comprehension. And what has been done to us may still be very serious. But compared to the debt that we have been forgiven, it pales into insignificance. We need to recognise that we have been forgiven much. And as we have been forgiven, as we live in that, it overflows into forgiveness of others. There's a level... Also, the fourth thing, that law of reciprocity. I've got to look after myself first. The gospel tells us that God is a God who looks after everything. You can trust him. You can trust him to look after you. If he gave you Christ, will he hold back anything else from you? Brothers and sisters, the gospel gives us the power. The fact that Christ died and rose again, as we've remembered this morning, for me, for you, for us. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us transforms us and makes it possible for us to be merciful 
as our Heavenly Father is merciful. So how do we put it into practice? As I conclude, just a few things. Our relationship with God dominates all others. So we first have to go to him. So much when we are hurt, we want to get caught up in what's happening on the horizontal. We want to go to the one who's hurt us. Maybe we want to hurt them back. Maybe we want to seek justice against them. But go to God first. Go to the gospel first. Know who you are. I love Jack Miller's phrase. He says, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you could dare imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Know the debt that you have been forgiven and how cherished you are in Christ. Live in that and then go. Secondly, recognise that forgiveness, particularly forgiveness of something that is big. And I'm not going to say what's big and what's not. So much of that depends upon our experience. But forgiveness is a process and for some sin that has been committed against us, that process will happen every single day. Like peeling open an onion, layer upon layer upon layer. Recognise that forgiveness can be a process. Thirdly, don't wait until you feel like it. Remember how I was talking about that kind of love? That love that depends upon the choice to love, not the lovability of the object of your love. Don't wait until you feel it. So often emotion follows action. Plan to make concrete steps. Maybe you go out from this morning and you think about that particular person and you say, what God would you have me do to show my love for them? At the very least, that person should become a regular focus of our prayers. And don't do it alone. Have others around you. Have support of others. Have accountability to others. Don't do it alone. Pray with others. Share with others. But know the grace that is yours in Christ. Brothers and sisters, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Let's pray now. Lord, we do ask that you would help us do something that seems so hard. But Father, you do not call us to do anything that you have not already done yourself. Father, you have forgiven us our disdainful rejection of you as king. Our rejection of our creator our sustainer. Father, help us to be amazed by your grace every single day. And Father, by your spirit, soften our hearts. Show us areas where we have not forgiven, where we have not loved, 
where we have been tempted to hate, to curse. Forgive us. And Father, let us be those who short-circuit evil as the Lord Jesus himself did so that we might show ourselves to be your children, to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.